Let's go ahead and just turn to the word of God. Matthew uh, chapter 16, we're going to read from verse 13 all the way to verse uh, 19. Matthew chapter 16 from verse 13 all the way to verse 19. We're going to take this from the NASB. And it reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, he said, you are, the son, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my father who is in heaven. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail or not, or not overpower it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The title of today's message is called Jesus Christ, the Rock Star. I thought I'd get more people laughing than that, but it's all right. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the Rock Star. One of the things I find very challenging in today's Christianity, um, when you're cutting on Christian television or you're listening to multiple people um, preach sermons, is just a lack of emphasis on the person of Jesus Christ and his work. And I find this so troubling because had it not been for Jesus, there would be no existence of what we would call church. It's extremely sad. Jesus was um, speaking and he told, he told the Jews, he said that if you search the scriptures, in it you think you will find eternal life, but I tell you that these scriptures, they testify of me. So if you wanted to give a summary of what the entire Bible is about, it's about Jesus. And so I find it very um, disheartening that there's not an emphasis on Jesus in a lot of our messages today. The emphasis tends to be on things that sound a lot like self-help, you, you know, how to bring out the champion in you, how you can live your best life now. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a champion. There's nothing wrong with living your best life now. Yes, but it must be, the emphasis must be Jesus if we're ever going to preach from a pulpit. Amen? So I like the trajectory that we're on, the fact that we are putting a lot of emphasis on Christ in the scriptures because the scriptures testify of him. Yes, and so here we are. Uh, the Messiah and his disciples, they are approaching uh, the village in the region of Caesarea Philippi. As they are coming closer to Caesarea Philippi, um, he is asking them a set of questions that would either uh, alter their paradigm or affirm what they've always been thinking when it comes to him. 
See, the nation of Israel was previously conquered by the Greeks in, 30, in 330 uh, B.C. Um, by a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. I'm pretty sure if you read history, you would have heard of Alexander the Great. And so Alexander the Great invaded um, Israel with a lot of other countries. He was pretty much the emperor at that time. He had an empire. And typically what would happen is that whenever um, a nation invades another nation, they would bring to that nation that they just invaded their gods, their culture, things that, in other words, they set the tone for what this nation would look like going forward. So no longer is that nation having an identity of its own. It's now under the authority and the rulership of the empire or that invading nation. And so Israel is no different. And so under the occupations of the Greeks, they built temples that were dedicated to the worship of gods in various areas in Israel. So many of the cities were established as centers of worship for these Greek gods and goddesses. So as the Hellenistic Empire began to lose power, the Romans took over. And the Romans were a big fan of Greek culture. And they incorporated Greek, um, they incorporated Greek culture into their culture, making Greek gods and goddesses their gods and goddesses. So for instance, you've heard about Zeus. Well, in the Roman culture, they also believed that Zeus was their high god, but they gave him the name Jupiter because they were into worshiping the stars and the planet. So Zeus now becomes Jupiter, and that's pretty much what they've done. They assimilated their, the Greek views of God and goddesses into their views of gods and goddesses. So let's go to um, the first slide. So I just want to give a breakdown of Sister Philippi so you can kind of understand the context of what is taking place when Jesus is having this discussion with his disciples. So Sister Philippi was originally called Paeneas. Um, Paeneas was pretty much the old name for that region under the Canaanites. It was located at the bottom of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, if you've um, been very big on reading the scriptures, is where that Jesus experiences the transfiguration. It's possibly also the location where David was crowned king of Israel, of all of Israel. Um, it was built on top of a massive rock. It was renamed after Herod Philippi and Caesar Tiberius. It was a territory of the tribe of Dan, which is pretty much part of northern Israel, and it was located near the city of Dan. They had a big cave in, um, in Sister Philippi called the Cave of Pan, which was a major attraction. So if you were into idol worship, this was the cave that you had to visit if you were going to Sister Philippi. Next, next slide. So let's talk about worship at Sister Philippi. Originally, it was dedicated as a place of worship for Baal by the Canaanites. Many sanctuaries were built around the cave of Pan because, again, um, Pan was considered the place where the, the Greek god Pan lived. So they believed that he actually lived in the cave. And so what they did is they built a temple in front of that cave as basically an access point into the cave of Pan. Inside the cave of Pan was a um, was believed to be this place called uh, it's like a uh, uh, it's like a, a big pool. 
um, or you don't want to call it a river because it was centralized, but it was this big pool that was somewhat bottomless. It was like an abyss. They didn't know how deep the water in this pool went, but it was an attrib- but they attributed this pool to the gods and goddesses. And so what would happen is they would typically make sacrifices to these idols, and the, uh, and the assumption was that if you threw your sacrifice into this pool, and if the sacrifice sank in this pool and did not come back up, that means that the gods were appeased. So this was basically a location of worship um, by the Greeks and Romans to the various gods and idols. Next so the worship at Sisera Pilipi, uh, so temple was constructed and worship also to, uh, to Caesar by Herod. So the king of Israel was also now worshiping um, the, the, Roman, the Roman emperor. King Jeroboam and um, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 12, 25 to 33 is being depicted as one who also led Israel into idol worship. And idolatry, in a sense, was stating that you were giving access to your land, to the, the, to the strange gods, the, the idols that you worship. You were basically saying this land that you were living in was now under the ownership of these gods and these idols. Amen? Uh, next slide, I think that's... Okay, go back, go back. All right, so we're back. So we're back at Matthew chapter 16, verses... 13. And of course, Jesus is asking them this question. And, he, and he's saying that, why do you, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Now you ask yourself, well, what, is, what does the phrase Son of Man mean? The Son of Man is mentioned, is mentioned 81 times in the New Testament. It is a very common phrase among Jewish people because they understood what Son of Man meant. The idea of the Son of Man traces back to Daniel chapter 7, in which Daniel has this vision of seeing one who is like God, or one who has the same power and authority as God, but at the same time was not viewed as God. So just to kind of summarize this, let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which, is, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed, which will not be destroyed. If you understand this depiction in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, concerning the Son of Man, it is also parallel to the book of Revelations, chapter 4 and chapter 5, specifically chapter 5, verse 7, in which God is seated on the throne and the Lamb, who is now approaching the throne, worthy of opening up the, the, the scroll, was now the one who took the scroll from the one who was seated on the throne, which was God. So this is basically the same exact picture. 
So Yeshua is basically asking a question concerning who do the Jews believe is the Messiah because the Son of Man is basically viewed and understood to be the Messiah, the one who is destined to reign. So he wants to know who is the rightful king in this strategic location called Sisri Philippi, a place that is dedicated to all these different gods and these different idols and even worship to Caesar. I want to know who is the king. Remember that Sister Philippi is a district in Israel that has been given over to, over to idol worship and those who have, been declared, who have declared in their heart that Caesar is God. Others who worship Pan and other dead spirits that were believed to have taken residence in the cave of Pan, otherwise known as the gates of Hades. So Yeshua is taking a consensus. He wants to know who do you believe he is as the son of man? Matthew 16, verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And it's pretty much, it's very interesting because at this time, all these prophets that they mentioned had died. John the Baptist was dead at this point. Jeremiah has died a long time ago. Elijah was dead. But there's this strong notion that the Messiah, at the very least, would be a prophetic figure, one who would speak the words of God, one who would proclaim the kingdom in the reign as God. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and certain prophets spoke specifically of the kingdom of God and the son of David who will reign on the throne. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 stated, states that it's a prophecy stating that Elijah was to return. So some Jews believe that Elijah would be the coming Messiah or one like, or one like Elijah. John the Baptist's sermons began to revive hope concerning the kingdom of heaven, so much so that a lot of Jews were assuming that John the Baptist might have been the Messiah. So there was a strong assumption that, that Jesus either is a reincarnation of these prophets who have died or that he is walking in the spirit of these same prophets and he might be the Messiah. So in summary, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, so in summary, Jews did not have a unified consensus concerning the Messiah or who the Messiah would be. What was indisputable was that the nation of Israel was in a religious, social, political disarray. The priesthood was sold to the highest bidder. The kingship was in bondage to Rome. In spiritual darkness, principalities, rulers of wickedness in high places have imprisoned, oppressed, depressed, and possessed the people. They are in need of a new sense of kingship. So he, Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ said to them, but who do you say that I am? In other words, this, this question is now transitioning from what other people think about me, but you who walk with me all this time, you that have seen me do all these miracles, who have healed the blind, who have relieved the captives from their captivity, who have, who have delivered uh, people from, from bondage under demonic oppression, who do you say that I am? See, notice that he is asking the ones who were closest to him about his identity. 
They experienced the hand of God working through this rabbi. And yet the question is, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? It was as if Yeshua was checking to see if his disciples were able to properly evaluate and assess, maybe even comprehend and summarize who he is. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter um, chapter 16, Simon Peter answered, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, you are the Messiah, the expected one. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the answer to our prayers. You are the divine liberator. The one who can set things right, the revealed arm of Yahweh in Isaiah 53 verse 1. You are the righteous king, the son of David. You are the fulfillment of our hope and the only one who can restore us back to greatness. The only one who can bring us from back from debt, death, and crisis. You are, the one for, you are the one from God, and you are God, and I affirm that God is your father. We accept that Caesar is not the son of God, but you are the son of God. To proclaim that Yeshua is the Messiah, the son of the living God, meant that there was no need to look for someone else to fill that void in their hearts. To call him the Messiah, the Son of God, meant that no other God was supreme and that everything and everyone must bow down before him. To proclaim that he was the Son of God meant that there could be no allegiance to Caesar or the Roman government. To proclaim that Yeshua is the Messiah and the Son of God means that America, above and beyond being a responsible citizen, I am not have no allegiance to America. I'm not saying rebel against America. Please hear me right. I don't want this getting on YouTube and then they say, all right. <laughs> but we are required by God's law to oppose policies and actions that this country may deem is legal but violate the very kingdom of God. So we do not support national policies that are unjust towards another country. You are not to be in allegiance with any, with any government that oppresses its people, its citizens, that shows favoritism to the rich and to the wealthy at the expense of the poor and the needy. Do not support any policy that is unjust towards foreigners in this nation because that is not consistent with the kingdom of God. When you declare that Yeshua is the Messiah and the Son of the living God, you are bound to a higher set of principles and you are requested by his majesty and appointed by his majesty as an ambassador of God's will, not only to the United States, but all the nations around the world. To declare that Yeshua is the Messiah and the son of God means that I go where he wants me to go and I say what he wants me to say. It means a willingness to lose popularity, lose my job, or have my social media account deleted. It might mean losing Facebook friends or get put in Facebook prison. You know that happens, right? <laughs> you say something they don't like on Facebook, they put you on timeout. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> This might get your Instagram account shut down. Declaring that Yeshua is the Messiah means that you are going to be unpopular in an age and in a time where popularity is highly demanded. 
Now watch how Jesus responds to Peter's confession in verse 17. It states, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There's two things that I, that I took from this particular uh, passage. One, Peter is blessed because of, a, because of a revelation that he received directly from the father. It's a revelation that he didn't work for. It was by God's grace that Peter received this revelation. And because it was by God's grace, Peter was blessed as a result of it. True knowledge, number two, true knowledge and affirmation that Yeshua is the Messiah cannot come from human intellect. You cannot come to the conclusion by spending three years in seminary or obtaining a Bible college degree that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter did not earn this because he was, because he was smarter than the rest. He, he got this revelation because it came directly from God. It's, it's, it's amazing because here in Christianity, we have people who one day say, well, we believe that Jesus is the son of God. And the next day they believe, they don't believe that he's the son of God. I know of one particular uh, theologian, his name is Bart, Bert Ehrman. He is like, when it comes to New Testament, he is the, one of the best of the best when it comes to um, reading old manuscripts and pretty much, in a sense, deciphering the, uh, the mindset of the, uh, of the New Testament mentality. He's one of the best. Professors, by and large, would call him to come to their seminary or university to break down the New Testament. He was a major figure. This same Bert Ehrman now denies that Jesus Christ is Lord. This same Bert Ehrman is agnostic. He doesn't even believe that there is a God. So this revelation of knowing who Jesus Christ is cannot come from intellect. Your mind, your mental capacity is not able to comprehend it. It has to come directly from God. Amen? True faith transforms you. God reveals to you an understanding about him that is undeniable. God reveals to Peter that Yeshua is the Messianic King and Yahweh in the flesh. Peter just didn't guess the right answer to a divine pop quiz. God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, revealed it to him. And in verse 18, this is the response. Jesus says to Peter, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And there's so much to even unpack in verse 18 that I had to work backwards. So please indulge me as I work backwards. Next slide. We're going to start with the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades was another name for the cave of Pan. It was a gateway to the underworld of the dead because it was believed that dead spirits had reside, had, were residing or took residence in this cave. It was a sense of, it struck a sense of fear in the Israelites 
about this cave because at night, sometimes this cave would make weird noises. And so the assumption was that the spirits were active and moving in this cave. You had no business being anywhere close to this cave at night. So it, it struck fear in their hearts. One of the cool things about the cave of Pan is that the water that came out of the cave of Pan was also a source of water for the river Jordan. So this is where the Jordan River would get its water, water sources from. The gates of Hades or the cave of Pan is synonymous with death as a prison. In other words, you die here, there is no coming back. You die here, there is no resurrection. You die here, you're stuck here. Christ said, upon this rock, I will build or establish my church. Next slide. What does he mean? Well, first, let's understand what he means by church. The word church is, in my estimation, and maybe a lot of others, is a, is a mistranslation of the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is the actual Greek word. Um, ecclesia, um, ecclesia, I'm sorry, church places an emphasis on a building rather than a people, whereas ecclesia places an emphasis on the people. Ecclesia, if you want to translate it into English, means a summoned people or a people called out. It gives you the idea of, of Israel. Israel was a nation that was called out of Egypt. And so the appropriate words for ecclesia would be words like congregation or assembly or synagogue. It was, it was where people were placed as an emphasis. I remember going to this church in Houston, and this was part of my seminary, where I had to, in a sense, um, shadow a pastor there. And in this church, they spent, I mean, they were facing financial challenges. Um, they rented this facility uh, that cost them $7,500 a month. And we're talking about a congregation that was no more than maybe 20 to 50 people. And so it was a huge burden to continue to stay in this facility. Well, I went to the pastor and I said, well, maybe we need to think about leaving this particular facility and going to a smaller facility that would pretty much house your people and do everything that you need to, you know, that you need to have done. He told me that it was a good idea. The problem was that some people that were in the church who were considered the big tithes and offering payers, if you want to, if you want to use that phrase, um, would not like the move because they felt in their mind that they would be going backwards to a smaller location meant going backwards because of the location that we were at presently was kind of like similar to a mega church. So you can imagine 20, 50 people only occupying maybe the middle row and the very front of the entire church. So it looked kind of dead inside there. So it made no sense that we would spend all this money to be in this particular location that we don't even own. We're simply just renting here. But it was because the emphasis was placed on the building and not the people, it prevented this church from gaining a sense of peace financially. I'm going backwards. 
So Jesus says that I will establish, he said I will build or establish my ecclesia. Now what is he establishing or building his people on? The Messiah said upon this rock. Caesarea Philippi was built on a massive rock. So again, here's these imageries that Jesus is using to convey his message. But this passage is speaking of his people and where his people are placed on. First, we must understand that this is not a passage in which Yeshua is, begin, is, going to, is beginning to call Simon Peter. This was not the first time that Simon was called Peter. Let's go to the next slide. He's drawing a comparison between Peter as a rock and the Messiah who is the sure foundation that his people will be established upon. So Peter comes from the Greek word Petros or Cephas in in Aramaic. Peter means a stone, a pebble, such as a small rock found along a pathway. It is insignificant by itself and is isolated from others. And with the right kind of opposing force, you can move it. The other rock, Petra, is a mass, is a mass or connected rock. Because remember, Jesus is saying that upon this rock, I will build my church. But he's telling Peter, he's telling us to Peter whose name means rock. So this other rock is Petra, a massive rock. If you understand that Sister Philippi was built on top of a massive rock, you would get the right idea. A massive rock is huge. It's unmovable. It's unshakable. You can't pick up this kind of rock and move it anywhere. The same Greek word for Petra in this passage is the same Greek word for rock that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. So basically, this rock is Christ. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, you don't have to go there. It says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock, Petra, was Christ. See, this is where the Roman Catholic Church gets it wrong. The Roman Catholic Church would say that, 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 the, that the church was established upon Peter. But that's extremely incorrect. They say that the Roman Catholic Church was established upon the the concept of a pope, the papal system. But actually, the church was established upon Christ, who was an immovable, unshakable, sure foundation. He is a massive rock. Because Peter would make some mistakes, but Christ is able to guarantee his word. In the new covenant, God is calling, is, is calling out people from all the nations to join the Messiah as the new Israel based on the Messiah and the Messiah alone. We are an assembly, a gathering together, the ecclesia or people called out from the world united with the Messiah that will overcome death. Because the Messiah is the sure foundation. He is not a little rock. He is a massive rock. He is not a little rock. He's an unmovable rock. He's not not a little rock. He's an unshakable rock. 
and we are his community. When he overcomes, we overcome. See, Yeshua was well aware of the pending threat that, that, that being recognized as the, as the Messiah, the Son of living God, had to the various establishments of leadership. This would be an unseating of Caesar from his position as the king of the earth. This would be an unseating or a, a breakaway from the Roman Empire. It meant rejecting King Herod as the king of Israel. It meant no longer considering the appeal to the Pharisees and Sadducees as the final authority concerning scripture and the things of Moses because the apostles now had the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the power to bind and loose. It would mean challenging the status quo and when you challenge those in authority, which would actually invite persecution, punishment, and death, and it actually did. Next slide. This is Tertullian, who is um, who is a church father, and I like to emphasize that he was around in the seventh, second century, and he was African. I want to make that absolutely clear. So, if anybody, I'm, I'm look, I'm serious. Does anybody tell you that Christianity was a white man's religion? That is absolutely false. Here is an African guy who is considered one of the great uh, great church fathers. Listen to what he says concerning Christians facing persecution. He says, the Christians are to blame for every public disaster and every misfortune that befalls the people. If the Tiber rises to the wall, if the Nile, the Nile River fails to rise and flood the fields, if the sky withholds its rain, if there is earthquake or famine or plague, straightway the cry arises the Christians to the lions. In other words, they blame Christians for everything. And if there was anything to blame a Christian for, that meant death to a Christian. Next slide. Here is another historian. His name is uh, Philip Schaeff. And he says this. He says that there began a carnival of blood such as even heathen Rome never saw before or since. A vast multitude of Christians was put to death in the most shocking manner. Some were crucified. Some sewn up in animal skins and thrown to the dogs. Some were covered in pitch, nailed to the wooden post, and burned as tor torches. It was in the fallout of this that Peter and Paul gave their lives for their Savior, probably within a year of each other. Most of the apostles, or of all the apostles except for John, were killed because of their allegiance to the Messiah as the king and the son of the living God. But the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell in some of your translations, did not prevail. Amen. Death did not prevail over the body of Christ because the body of Christ was not built upon Peter and Paul. They were functional, but it wasn't established upon them. So at the death of Peter and Paul did not stop the church because the church was established upon the rock, the massive rock, the unmovable rock, the unshakable rock, the unmovable, unshakable rock of Yahweh, our Savior. His name is Jesus. Amen. David had an encounter with this rock. The great psalmist. And when I read this particular passage, I, I, related to, I related to it as if I was the one that wrote it. Sometimes I like to claim that I was the one that wrote, that wrote it and David just stole it from me. But I related to this passage. Psalms 18, verse 1. 
And we're going to read to verse 8, and then we're going to jump to verse 30. Psalms 18, verse 1 to 8. And if this passage relates to you, you got to shout hallelujah. So y'all ready? Hallelujah. All right. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Verse four, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol, of Hades, of hell surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and the cry and cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came to his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountain were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. He smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Verse 30, go to verse 30. As for God, as for God, his ways is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless and makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon the high places and trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow like bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation and your your right hand upholds me and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. He is the unmovable, unshakable, massive rock. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And now I understand why they sing that song that hide me under the rock. Mm, the rock that is higher than I. Jehovah hide me. I am under the rock. Go tell my enemies that I am under the rock. Jehovah hides me. I am under the rock. The rock is higher than I. Amen. 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 